Old-Fashioned Murder and Mayhem, Forbidden Love, Francis Asbury Hawkins, 1887. The front page headlines of the New York Times on Saturday, October 1st, 1887, joyfully declared the U.S. yacht the Sandy Hook Lightship Volunteer had retained America's Cup against the Challenger Scotland Lightship Thistle in the maritime race the previous day. There had been wind and rain throughout that Friday, but the conditions which were predicted to favor the Scottish vessel gave an advantage to the Americans. The race took place within sight of Long Island, New York, where other, more sinister events were brewing. Sunday morning, October 2nd, 1887, promised to be another rainy, foggy New York day. Joseph Preston, keeper of the Brentwood Cemetery located in the center of Suffolk County, and blacksmith William Gooder were traveling together along muddy Brentwood Road at about 11 a.m. when a bright red object partially hidden in the brush along the road caught their attention. It appeared to be a red shawl. Something about it caused both men to stop short. An eerie dread settled over them. They climbed down to get a better look, and to their horror, they realized a woman's body was dumped into the brush. Ghastly cuts all about her head and face rendered identification of the woman impossible. Frozen in terror, both men were paralyzed by the realization a murder had been committed. Regaining their senses, the men quickly made their way to the nearby town of Islip to summon the doctor and constable. Welcome to the True Crime Podcast, Old Fashioned Murder and Mayhem. I am your host, Mindy Hudson. This podcast brings you historical stories of murders and scandals that occurred in small towns throughout America. By combining the resources and methods used in genealogy research, I piece together the details of the lives and circumstances of notorious events that touch the lives of our ancestors. The aim of this podcast is to examine the background, documents, newspaper accounts, and cultural influences surrounding the events. It is not my purpose to sensationalize or shame the subjects or their families. All families have skeletons in the closet. But to look at the lives of real people and see how circumstances of nature and nurture, as well as how world events affected the lives of the people involved in the stories. I have spent over 50 years interested in genealogy research and recently retired as head of genealogy at the Jefferson County Library in Missouri. During my tenure, I began a podcast entitled Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri which gained popularity. Upon my retirement, I decided to continue and expand the podcast with similar stories found in small towns across the United States. Join me now as we explore tales of old-fashioned murder and mayhem. Islip, New York, sits on the central southern section of Long Island in Suffolk County, Founded in the late 17th century from a royal patent granted to William Nichol, the land was purchased from Winnie Quahee, chief of the Connecticut, 
Nestled between Long Island Sound and the Atlantic Ocean, the sandy beaches quickly drew the attention of the upper crust of America's elite. Soon, luxurious homes and vacation resorts sprang up along the picturesque shores. Among the oldest and most widely respected pioneers in the Bay Area were the Hawkins and Clock families. Locals made a living fishing, whaling, producing paperboard, and manufacturing. Tourism brought tremendous wealth to the inhabitants and a strict division of classes between the wealthy elite and working-class servants developed. According to the 1850 U.S. Federal Census, the family of Nathaniel Oakley Clock and Lucretia Thurber made their home in the southern coastal town of Islip. There were eight children in the household. By 1860, three more children were added to the family. Daughter Cynthia Anna, born 1844, was listed in the Clock household in 1860, although she was already married to Franklin Ezra Hawkins, a mariner. He was enumerated in the household of his parents, Ebenezer Hawkins and Hannah Marie Wicks. The Clock and Hawkins families were deeply religious and were of the Methodist faith. In October 1862, Frank and Cynthiana Hawkins welcomed a son, Francis Asbury Hawkins. About this time, Frank gave up life on the sea and opened a lumber yard. Two more children, Grace Ellingwood, 1872, and Wilford Judson, 1877, were added to the family in the following years. The Hawkins' eldest son, called Asbury, although the apple of his mother's eye was also known in the Islip community to have a mean streak. He took fiendish delight in capturing animals, particularly cats, and torturing them to death. He was expelled from the local school at one point due to his ungovernable behavior. His father had voiced concern about his son to his brother, but Mrs. Hawkins brushed off the disturbing incidents as boyish pranks that he would surely outgrow. In 1879, Frank Hawkins passed away, leaving Cynthiana with three young children and a sizable fortune. In the years that followed, Mrs. Hawkins supplemented the household income by taking in boarders, usually teachers, and had an interest in the lumber yard now operated by her brother-in-law, Philander J. Hawkins. Her eldest son, Asbury, went to work at a store owned by Cynthiana's brothers, Seth and Hallett Clock, in nearby Bayshore. Asbury, now living with his uncle and aunt, Hallett and Eliza Clock, had a taste of freedom which he used in pursuits that mortified his mother's proper sensibilities. Rumors of drinking and carousing with disreputable women eventually led to heated arguments with his mother over his unsavory lifestyle. Nevertheless, despite the tension, Asbury routinely visited her Main Street home every Tuesday and Sunday. In September 1886, Seth and Eliza Clock hired a young servant girl named Hattie Shrek. She was a pretty brunette with large brown eyes. It didn't take long for her to catch the attention of 21-year-old Asbury Hawkins, and a romance blossomed. 
Hattie Schreck, born March 1866, was the daughter of German immigrants Charles Schreck and Louisa Brindle. Charles was a woodcarver who worked in Brooklyn. He died before 1870, leaving a wife and two small daughters, Minnie and Hattie. Louisa went to work as a dressmaker and milliner. It appears she may have died around 1876, as no record can be located pertaining to her after this point. The Shrek girls, in their teens, were taken to an orphanage. Their stay at the facility was brief, as an uncle found employment for them as domestic servants and secured their release. In November 1883, Minnie, 19, applied to live at the almshouse on Blackwell's Island due to a hip disease that hindered her ability to work and had left her destitute. Blackwell's Island, later called Roosevelt's Island, housed several charity institutions including hospitals, a penitentiary, a lunatic asylum, and almshouses. In the latter 19th century, it became notorious when an investigative article by Nellie Bly revealed the appalling conditions suffered by the inmates there. Sister Hattie Schreck, about 17, was working in Troy, New York in 1883, according to the application. Somehow, around 1886, Hattie ended up on Long Island and was hired as a domestic servant by the Seth Clock family where she and Asbury Hawkins met and began their courtship. Eventually, Asbury asked for Hattie's hand in marriage, which must have been a dream come true for the poverty-stricken girl. It may have seemed like a true life Cinderella tale that a young gentleman of the elite Long Island society wanted to marry a scullery maid. It didn't seem to occur to Miss Shrek that her presence in that social circle would not be welcomed with opened arms. Had she been more worldly, she could have taken a clue about the situation in that it took quite a long time for Asbury to set a date for the nuptials. The true reason for the delay was that Asbury's mother, Cynthiana Hawkins, was not about to entertain the idea of her son marrying so far beneath him. When he finally admitted his plans and that he wanted to bring his bride home to the Hawkins estate to live, she made it very plain that she would never allow that to happen. When it became apparent that he was determined to go through with the marriage anyway, Mrs. Hawkins intervened by convincing her brother Seth to send the girl away. She left his household and sought sanctuary at the Northport home of her longtime friend, Mrs. Nellie Johnson. Not to be thwarted by his mother, Asbury continued to pursue Hattie without Mrs. Hawkins' knowledge. He made regular trips to Northport and convinced Hattie to reinstate the engagement, assuring her that he would gain his mother's blessing. The wedding was set to occur in Brooklyn at the Hanson Place Methodist Church on Sunday, October 2, 1887. On the day the wedding was to occur, Asbury arrived at the Northport residence in the morning and asked Hattie to postpone the ceremony until Wednesday because his mother wanted them to be married at her home. Obviously disappointed, Hattie retorted that it was unfair that she should have to wait another day. 
they argued a bit, and finally he said that he would go back and let his mother know that he was going through with the marriage that day. He promised to return at 4 o'clock p.m. that afternoon so they could catch the train to New York. He never arrived. Instead, two detectives showed up at the Northport house looking for Asbury. When they asked the young woman about Asbury, she shook violently and said, There is trouble, I'm afraid. Indeed, there was. Unknown to the last, the situation between her intended groom and his mother had already become deadly. While he was in Northport, the bloodied and beaten body of his mother, Cynthiana Clock Hawkins, had been discovered on Brentwood Road. The remains were identified by her brother, Seth Clock, and brother-in-law, Philander Hawkins, who had been alerted by their niece, 16-year-old Grace Hawkins, that her mother was missing and apparently had not slept in her bed the previous night. They heard the report that a woman's body had been discovered on the road and rushed to the scene, hoping, against all hope, that it wasn't Cynthiana. To their dismay, they saw that their worst fears were realized. Suspicion immediately fell on Asbury, whose whereabouts were unknown. Grace Hawkins related that she had last seen her mother that Saturday at 7 o'clock p.m. as she headed for bed for the evening. Her little brother, Wilburn, and the two school teachers who boarded at the house had already retired for the night. Mrs. Hawkins was reading and assured her daughter that she would soon go to bed. When the household awoke the next morning, Grace noticed her mother was gone, but assumed she had risen early and had gone out. It wasn't until she checked her room that she realized the bed had not been slept in that night. She alerted her uncles, who immediately began searching. Because of the rainy conditions, it was easy to see the imprints of horseshoes and buggy wheels in the mud. The horse that was pulling the buggy had distinct markings on the horseshoes. Stable keeper Elephalet Snedeker of Bayshore recognized the tracks as belonging to a horse at his carriage rental shop which had been taken out by young Asbury the previous evening at approximately 8.30 p.m. Asbury had ordered a wagon with closed sides to be made ready for him that Saturday. He returned with the coach around 11 p.m., asking that the carriage not be cleaned as he was going to need it again early the following morning. Snedeker confirmed he had returned early that Sunday. George M. Smith, a resident of Bayshore, remarked he had seen the carriage which met him on the road at approximately 9.30 Saturday evening and had heard a pistol shot shortly after but didn't think anything about it at the time. At that point, Mr. Snedeker recalled seeing young Hawkins throw something into the water near his stable yard that night as the horses were being fed. It seemed the circumstantial evidence was piling up against Asbury, and when he returned to the stable at about 4.30 p.m., several men were waiting for him. He was whistling as he drove up and strolled casually up to Snedeker to settle his bill when Coroner Edwards stepped forward and said, quote, I arrest you for murdering your mother, end quote. 
Hawkins stepped back as if surprised. He gasped and remarked that there must be some mistake. He knew nothing about it. He commented that you can't prove I did. He admitted he had stopped at Babylon and heard that someone had been murdered but never dreamed it could be his mother. However, it was soon discovered that Hawkins had stopped at the Wheeler Hotel in Northport and had washed the carriage inside and out himself while there. He drove home slowly, allowing the buggy time to dry. An article in the October 4, 1887 edition of Brooklyn Times Union reported that, quote, Constable Egbert Benjamin of Bayshore took charge of the prisoner and took him to his house as he drove by Mrs. Hawkins' house where the remains of the murdered women lay. Hawkins was whistling, climbing up the golden stairs. You, you will be climbing up the golden stairs, the constable was heard to mutter as he gave his faithful old horse a whack with his whip, end quote. Later that evening, Hawkins was visited by two of his uncles and confessed that he had indeed murdered his mother and was ready to answer for the crime. Although his story changed in detail upon each telling, the facts of the narrative remained basically the same. Asbury Hawkins had fallen in love with the servant girl Hattie Shrek and was determined to make her his bride. When he revealed the plan to marry the girl and bring her home to their home to live, his mother was appalled. According to Asbury, she had interfered at least three times to break the engagement. After his regular Tuesday visit ended in a heated discussion over the subject, he decided that she would either give her blessing for the marriage or he would get her out of the way. He ordered a carriage to be equipped with side covers to be made available Saturday evening, saying that he was going to meet one of his uncle's customers. That evening, he slipped into the lumber yard which adjoined his mother's property and concealed the carriage until he saw that the household had retired for the evening except for Mrs. Hawkins. He came in to find her reading and told her that she must come quickly because her sister, Mary, Mrs. J.E. Smith was seriously ill. Despite the drizzly weather, Mrs. Hawkins quickly gathered her shawl and followed her son to the waiting carriage. Once they were on their way, Asbury revealed the true nature of his mission to secure his mother's blessing for the marriage to Hattie to commence. The argument between them became heated. Mrs. Hawkins' objections to the union were that she thought the upstart girl was an opportunistic looking for money, that she was beneath their station, and that she wasn't even a Christian lady. As she dug her heels in more and more, she said something to the effect that, quote, she would have that German prostitute in her home over her dead body, end quote. That was the final straw. Asbury reached into his coat pocket and drew out a gun, shouting that she would take that comment back. He knew Hattie's reputation to be spotless, and he wouldn't have her name defiled in such a way. But Mrs. Hawkins stubbornly refused. There was a struggle in which the young man slipped out of the coach. At that point, 22-year-old Asbury Hawkins shot his mother in the left temple and scrambled back into the wagon. 
He could hear her bone, so he began beating her with the butt of the gun as the carriage careened up the road past the Brentwood Cemetery. Realizing she wasn't dead, he shot her again. She slumped against his shoulder, but he believed she was still not dead. He shot her a third time. The wagon continued up the road a bit with her head jostling against his shoulder. Trying to determine what to do with her body, he drove up the road a bit and then turned around about two miles past the cemetery near Awixa Road in Bay Shore. There he dumped her body face down on the edge of the road near some bushes and hid the blood-soaked clothes and blanket. He got rid of the gun in a pond behind Snedeker's stable and returned to the carriage, remarking that he would come back early to take it out once more. At about 6 a.m. Sunday morning, he came back, took the carriage to Northport to see Hattie, and asked her to postpone the wedding until Wednesday. It seems he wanted to clean up the evidence and allow his mother's body to be discovered believing her violent death would be attributed to tramps. His cool demeanor during the confession was quite chilling. The two clock brothers for whom Asbury clerked wanted him tried and hung. His father's family took a more lenient stance, believing that Asbury's lifetime of strange behavior was an indication that he suffered from insanity. They were even willing to allow people to make claims that insanity ran in the Hawkins family to save him from the gallows, a remarkable concession for the period. Cynthiana Hawkins' funeral was held Monday, October 3, 1887, at the Methodist Church in Islip, New York. According to the Brooklyn Times Union, the Reverend David McMullen gave a brief sermon on forgiveness, telling the congregation some history about young Asbury Hawkins and asking the people to pray that the young man would be, quote, made penitent, but not that he shall escape punishment, end quote. He gave what was described as an eloquent tribute of eulogy to the dead woman, she was buried in the Hawkins family plot at the Oakwood Cemetery beside her husband. Her younger children, Grace and Wilford, were taken to live with their uncle and aunt, J. Clarence Hawkins and Anna Lamadou. Asbury Hawkins' trial was held the week of December 5, 1887, at the courthouse in Riverhead. District Attorney Wilmot M. Smith served as prosecutor for the case. General Benjamin F. Tracy appeared for the defense. The jury was made up of men whose occupations ranged from confectioners, hotel keepers, and carpenters. At 10.30 a.m., both sides had reached an agreement forming the jury, and they adjourned until the following day. On the second day of the Suffolk County Court of Oyer and Terminer, the room was called to order at 9 a.m., and the trial began. The facts of the case were presented by Smith and included an interesting detail that Hawkins had worn rubber boots the Sunday he was arrested, indicating he had known he would get his feet wet cleaning the bloody evidence from the wagon that day. Despite his efforts to conceal the blood, there were large traces found in the carriage and on items of clothing in his room, as well as the lap rope and blanket belonging to the carriage that had been discovered. 
Arthur Dominey was called to the stand and testified that he had found the gun, believed to have been the one Hawkins had thrown into the pond, and identified it. The thirty-two caliber bullet taken from the head of Mrs. Hawkins was a match with the bullet still in the chamber. In the afternoon, the defense presented their case that Francis Asbury Hawkins was deranged at the time of the crime. There was no other explanation for it. At that point, Hawkins himself took the stand. Spectators in the crowded courtroom then listened in horror as the young man described the matricide without any sign of remorse or emotion. During the evening session, there was a parade of witnesses testifying for and against the idea that Asbury suffered from a mental condition. Summation of the trial ended in the afternoon Wednesday, and the jury was dismissed to deliberate. At 3.05 p.m., they returned with a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to be hanged at the gallows on January 27, 1888. According to the Brooklyn Times Union, Hawkins showed no emotion when the sentence was passed. Upon his return to the prison, he remarked to the warden, quote, Well, Dave, I suppose I will have to hang, though it won't be for a year or so. Yet, well, I am satisfied. I took blood, and I'm willing to give my blood for it, end quote. An hour later, Hawkins was singing in his cell and dancing. Hawkins' sentence was postponed awaiting appeal. In April 1888, he and another inmate were caught planning to escape. He and the accomplice had fashioned keys to unlock the cells, but their plans were thwarted when the warden noticed the locks were suspiciously easy to turn. When Miss Hattie Shrek failed to appear at the trial of Asbury Hawkins, it was assumed that she had broken all ties with him. After all, she had been treated so spitefully by the high society of Long Island. Shortly after Asbury was arrested, however, she was interviewed in Northport by the New York Sun. In the article published October 5, 1887, when asked whether Hawkins had led her to believe his mother approved of the marriage, she said he did. The following excerpt taken from the interview reveals how desperately the young woman wanted to believe him. Beginning of article. Then he deliberately deceived you. Oh, I do not know. I cannot think he would do that. He was always so good and kind to me and never told me any untruth. Where were you going to live after your marriage? At his mother's house. Don't you think you have had a very lucky escape? I cannot think of it that way. I only know that I love him. End of article. Remarkably, despite all that had happened, Miss Shrek began to make regular visits to Asbury at the Suffolk County Jail. It became apparent that she had expected no monetary gain from him when the question of what was to happen to his portion of his parents' inheritance was settled by his agreement to have his uncle Hallett Clock divided between his siblings at his death. None of it was to go to Hattie. Yet she continued to make regular visits weekly. Although she was briefly suspected of aiding the escape attempt and was forbidden to have direct contact with him for a 
time, that order was rescinded in July 1888. On October 22, 1888, Asbury Hawkins was brought before Judge Bartlett for the order in the case of the People v. Francis Asbury Hawkins in the Court of Appeals. The Brooklyn Times Union edition of October 23, 1888 reported the following, quote, Francis Asbury Hawkins, your appeal to the higher court has been decided against you, and it now remains for me to fix the day for the carrying out of the sentence imposed upon you. I therefore appoint the 11th day of December next for the carrying out of the sentence imposed upon you by the court. End quote. Hawkins paled slightly as the sentence was read, but kept his composure. As he was led away and passed down the stairs, he laughed and remarked, quote, Well, he gave me lots of time and broke into a whistle. End quote. All that was left to save Hawkins from the gallows was a pardon from the governor, which was taken up at the end of November. Governor David B. Hill met with representatives for the prisoner, which included two of his uncles, J.C. and Philander H. Hawkins, and the representative for the opposition, D.A. Wilmot Smith. A thorough presentation of the facts of the case and arguments against the use of the death penalty for this case was given. Nevertheless, Governor Hill chose not to intervene and the sentence was set to be carried out on December 11, 1888. During his stay at the prison, Hawkins tamed a mouse whose tail he cut off. At one point, another inmate got possession of the mouse and would not relinquish it. In response to that, Hawkins trapped two other mice and showed the only sign of his deranged thinking when he tortured and hanged the mice on makeshift gallows to, quote, see if they had any sand, end quote. This was a colloquialism meaning to test their bravery, a quality that Hawkins treasured above all else. As the day of the execution neared, Asbury calmly spent his time writing farewell messages to some of his relatives. He sent a letter to Hattie Shrek, which was mailed the morning before the hanging, begging her not to come, but it did not reach her in time. She arrived that afternoon, having taken the noon train to Riverhead, and went straight to the jail where she was cordially received. During his incarceration, Asbury had converted from his Methodist faith to Catholicism, possibly in a final show of defiance against his clock kin, who were solidly anti-papist and had worked so diligently to secure his fate. A full-page article appeared in New York's newspaper, The Daily World, on December 11, 1888, chronicling the last hours of the condemned man. His day began with a brief meeting with his beloved Hattie Shrek, in which he assured her he was a changed man and of his belief that they would meet again in heaven. She left the cell weeping hysterically. After her departure, his 16-year-old sister Grace arrived with her uncle Clarence Hawkins, a cousin and the Methodist minister who'd officiated his mother's funeral. Grace embraced him and sobbed quietly. Before departing, she kissed him goodbye. The rest of the evening was spent playing cards with his cellmate and readying himself for the day to come. 
He was given a shave by Sheriff Madden and quipped, Madden, don't cut my throat. I want to save my neck for Atkinson, the hangman, to crack. Hawkins made jokes to the other inmates that, quote, Tomorrow I am going to the necktie dance, end quote. As the evening drew near, he began his strange habit of whistling. It was noted that one of his favorite tunes was an old Norse Viking chant called I Believe It, For My Mother Told Me So. Modern listeners would recognize it as a song featured in the History Channel's television series Vikings in a version sung by Assassin's Creed, My Mother Told Me. Although the words from the series differed, an old version included these haunting lyrics, quote, My mother told me someday I will die. Raiders would come and tear me from my home. I will hold no fear. I will take my stand. I am a blood-born Viking. I fear no foe-man. After a restless night, Asbury was awakened at 7 a.m. He declined to eat breakfast. At 8.15, his arms were pinioned behind his back, the black cap was placed on his head, and the noose was placed around his neck with the knot on his left shoulder to ensure his neck would be broken and the death would be instantaneous. When they reached the gallows, his legs were tied and the cap was placed over his face. At 8.35 a.m., the signal was given for Atkinson, the hangman, to cut the rope, which held a 500-pound weight attached to the rope. Hawkins' body flew up into the air and convulsed briefly. He was pronounced dead at 8.38 a.m. His body was taken by train to be buried at the feet of his father in an unmarked grave in the Hawkins family plot at Oakwood Cemetery so as not to offend the Clock family. A crowd of reporters had gathered to cover the event, but the family had cleverly delayed the arrival of the body until after 6 o'clock p.m. to discourage onlookers. All but one reporter had given up a Brooklyn Times Union reporter who hid in the shadows. He observed the coffin being taken to the home of undertaker Mr. Gibson, where a team of doctors performed an autopsy of the dead man's brain. Once complete, the body was returned to the coffin and kept there until the following day. Early the next morning, the reporter passed by the home of William Doxey, a relative of Hawkins, where he observed Miss Shrek standing at a window, watching anxiously for the undertaker's wagon to pass. After the body arrived at the cemetery, a few family members and others gathered for a very brief ceremony. After their departure, Miss Hattie Shrek quietly made her way to the site. The constable followed at a distance, fearing Miss Shrek might do something rash, but she only lingered a short time, kneeling down and weeping quietly. Rumors of her intent to harm herself were put to rest by Hattie's cousin, Miss Brenner, in an interview with the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, published December 17, 1888. Miss Brenner insisted that Hattie was naturally grieving, but had shown grace in her suffering, and believed that Asbury was better off without the stain of his crime on his conscience. When asked whether she thought Hattie would recover from the affair and marry someday, Miss Brenner responded, quote, I don't think so. 
I feel sure she will keep her vow to be true to his memory. End quote. When asked what was to become of her cousin, Miss Brenner replied that Hattie and her sister Minnie planned to move to New York and open a dressmaking shop as their mother had done. It is unclear whether the Shrek girls were able to realize that dream. It seems unlikely. Minnie Shrek committed suicide on November 23, 1891 by drinking poison. She was 27. The last trace of Hattie Shrek was in the 1900 U.S. Federal Census where she was found living in the household of Albert Arthur, an ex-supervisor of the town of Huntington, Suffolk County. She was listed as a friend of his son and daughter-in-law, John Arthur, and the former Annie Bryant. She was 32 and unmarried. Grace Hawkins, the sister of Asbury, went on to become a beautiful young woman and married M.G. Scott, with whom she had two sons. She passed away in 1947. Her younger brother, Wilford Judson Hawkins, became an ordnance engineer in World War I. He married Miss Julia Davenport Fackler in 1904, with whom he had several children. Wilford made a career in the military and obtained the rank of major. He died in 1959. To this day, the final resting place of Francis Asbury Hawkins has nothing to mark its location. His body is somewhere forgotten among the Hawkins family graves in Oakwood Cemetery. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forbidden Love, Francis Asbury Hawkins. Whether you are listening to this program as a podcast or watching via YouTube, please be sure to like, subscribe, share, and comment. For more information on this and other podcasts of old-fashioned murder and mayhem, please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, where there are links to resources, photographs, and documents used to construct the stories. For questions, comments, or suggestions for other historical subjects you'd like to hear, please email Mindy Hudson at M-E-L-I-N-D-A-M-A-L-O-O at gmail.com. Join me again next month for another episode of Old Fashioned Murder and Mayhem.